welcome to the Clifford Chance podcast, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. Everyone in the construction business wants to get paid. This includes the offshore sector in Western Australia, which is a major global player. For context, in 2021, Western Australia produced over a tenth of global LNG exports, and that would make it the fourth largest exporter above Russia if it was a separate country. Today, we're looking at recent legislative changes in Western Australia and how they impact on construction contracts for offshore work, which is part of a Clifford Chance series of podcasts called Construction Law Conversations, which are all available on our website. I'm Christian Maley. I'm a counsel with Clifford Chance's litigation and dispute resolution team here in Perth, specialising in major energy and resources projects. And I'm here with my esteemed colleague, Pat Saracini, our resident expert in all things shipping and maritime. Pat? Thanks very much, Christian. Um, so as Christian said, my name's Pat Saraceni. I'm a director with Clifford Chance LNDR team here in Perth. And like Christian, I also specialise in major energy and offshore resource projects with a particular bent or focus, as Christian says, on all things maritime. Thanks, Pat. Today, we're going to cover three main topics. Firstly, what kind of work and contracts does the Security of Payments Act apply to in the offshore sector in Western Australia? Second, where does a project have to be located for the Act to apply? And thirdly, some practical suggestions for the offshore sector about what steps you can take to be ready for this new Act. Christian, perhaps before we get to those three topics, I wonder whether um, you could explain what the Security for Payments Act actually does and, and why it's such a big deal for the offshore sector. And just for our listeners, um, just to point out that the full title of the Act is actually the Building and Construction Industry Security of Payment Act 2021 WA, but for current purposes, I think we'll just call it the Security of Payments Act. Christian? That's that's fair. It it is a bit of a mouthful. (laughs) Um, In simple terms, Pat, the Act effectively rewrites the payment and claim provisions of construction contracts for projects in Western Australia, both onshore and offshore. The new Security of Payments Act replaces the old Act called the Construction Contracts Act, But as we'll discuss, the new Act has much broader impacts for the offshore sector. Now, our colleagues Spencer Flay and Sean Marriott covered the general impact of the new Act in a recent construction law conversation from 1 August 22, which you can listen to separately. But just to recap, I'll I'll touch on the three biggest ticket items under the new legislation. So first, there's a legislated process for contractors to make payment claims. For practical purposes, this effectively overrides the payment terms in the contract including, importantly, the time that's allowed for responding to a payment claim. So that's that's 15 days and also the time for making payment, and that's between 20 and 25 business days, depending on the contract. So these are much shorter timeframes than the offshore sector is used to. Second, there's restrictions on contract claim procedures. Now, this focuses on what we call time bars. That means a provision in a contract which says, for example, the contractor has to make a claim within X number of days, or else it loses its right to claim. So those clauses are very common in the offshore sector as well as for onshore construction. But under the new legislation, uh, these clauses have to be fair and they can't be unreasonably onerous. Otherwise, they'll be invalid with the potential consequence that um, the contractor can make its claim regardless of whether it's made a notice in the time required by the contract. So thirdly and finally, the contractors have a right to submit claims separately to the contractual process to an impartial adjudicator appointed under the legislation to make a rapid determination of any disputed claims. So it sets up a freestanding process. 
Okay, thanks for that background as to what the Act actually does, Christian. That's really helpful. I wonder if we can perhaps turn to the first of our three specific topics then. What kind of work and contracts does the Act apply to in the offshore sector? Well, there really is a, a very wide range and fundamentally it covers any construction that's going to form part of the land or the seabed. So in general terms, that's basically anything that's attached to the land or the seabed in Western Australia. So in the offshore space, the most obvious examples are things um, like um, pipelines, jetties and subsea infrastructure, and that will include, for example, manifolds, Christmas trees and so on. It also covers dredging and reclamation contracts. So for, for the offshore sector, though, there's two important exceptions where the Act doesn't apply. The first one of these is drilling contracts. So this applies to oil and natural gas drilling, including both exploration and production. So important exceptions for the sector. Those contracts won't be covered by the Act, but that exclusion is quite limited. It only applies to the actual drilling work and won't cover the construction or installation of most of the associated seabed infrastructure. This is a pretty major difference from the old Act, which also excluded the plant and equipment used for extracting and processing oil and gas. Okay, thanks, Christian. What about um, things like construction and installation of production platforms or subsea wellheads? W would they be covered by the legislation? There's a, there's a bit of a grey area here. Um, on the one hand, you could argue that these are part of the drilling exercise and therefore they're excluded. But on the other hand, you could argue that they are like anything else you might construct on the seabed and they're therefore covered. Uh, so with this grey area, we'll need to wait and see how the courts interpret the Act to see whether it applies. Okay, terrific. So so as I understand it, drilling contracts is the first exception. What's the, the second exception to the application of the Act, Christian? This one's a topic that will be dear to your heart, Pat. <laughs> um, the Act doesn't apply to the construction or fitting out of watercraft. So most obviously fitting out or construction of ships. Okay, great. So shipbuilding clearly would be excluded from the operation of the, the Payment Act. Um, what about, are there any grey areas, for example, things like the installation of FPSOs or FSOs? Arguably, that's not necessarily construction or fitting out. Would they be covered by the Act, do you think? Well, that, yeah, that's another grey area, Pat. And these questions might eventually come before the courts, which might give some more clarity. But for now, um, there's two factors to consider for those in the industry. So first, it's probably best to take a conservative approach with contracts and assume that the Act might apply. And secondly, um, if you have a contract for offshore drilling, it may well include some construction elements like the subsea tiebacks and manifolds. In those cases, the Act can still apply to the construction component of the contract, but it won't apply to the drilling itself. So we've covered some of the obvious examples there, Pat. What are some of the less obvious contracts that are likely to be covered by the Act? Well, one that springs to mind that's really topical for the uh, offshore industry in particular at the moment is decommissioning of offshore um, installations. And I think the Act's clear that dismantling and removing of offshore structures is treated as construction work, even though technically speaking, it's sort of destruction work because you're, you're destructing the actual um, installation. But for the purpose of the Act, it seems to be covered under the definition of construction works. And I think for the listeners, Section 61C defines construction work quite broadly as including, and I quote, demolition, dismantling or removal of any structure or civil work. 
so as we've discussed, there's some grey areas around wellheads and platforms, and that seems to apply to decommissioning as well. So for example, decommissioning of pipelines and subsea manifolds are pretty clearly caught by the legislation. Um, I think that would be very interesting to many of our listeners. Pat, um, aside from the head contracts or main contracts for offshore work, are there any um, lower tier contracts worth mentioning? Yeah, look, I think so. Interestingly, it, the Act having such a broad application doesn't just apply to the main or the overarching contracts, but it also applies to um, lower hierarchy service contracts um, on the same project. So, for example, a labour hire or a crewing or manning contract for an offshore construction project would fall within the Act because the Act calls them sort of related goods and services which are covered by the Act. So I think they'd come within that general purview. Um, that category also includes, perhaps, perhaps somewhat controversially, but it also includes contracts for the hire of plant and equipment used in the offshore construction. So on land, for example, that might cover things like, you know, your hire of an excavator and other plant and equipment. In the marine context, um, it'll probably also cover things like time charter parties for particularly work boats and support vessels and barges that are used as servicing the offshore sector. So it may not cover bare boat charters for the hire of the hull only of those vessels, but we'll probably have to wait and see how far that, that, that extension actually goes. So it really is quite far reaching. It's also worth mentioning, I find this aspect quite interesting, um, the Act expressly applies to the supply of prefabricated materials and components. So um, this is really relevant to Western Australia because often the manufacturing and the prefabrication work will happen a long way from Western Australia. For example, uh, it's common for process or structural modules destined for a project in Western Australia um, to be fabricated in somewhere like South Korea or Malaysia. And that prefabrication work will be caught by the Act, even if it's happening a long way away in those places. Okay, great. Thanks, Christian. So that probably deals with the first of our major topics, the kind of work and contracts that are covered by the legislation. If we can move on to the second area of focus, where does the project have to be located for the Act to apply? So the Christian? Act helpfully has two, two categories of what's in Western Australia. The first straightforward it's what what is in western australian territory territory that's not really relevant to the offshore sector because um western australian territory ends at the coastline specifically we're talking about the low water line here thanks for that christian so what's the second category then yeah so under the second category pat that the security of payments act will apply where firstly the construction contract is governed by western australian law and secondly the construction work is in an area of water adjacent to Western Australia, but not actually in Western Australian Territory. So Pat, for, the, for the Security Payments Act to apply under this category, um, it has to be governed by Western Australian law. What, what's the current market position in the offshore sector for these types of contracts we've mentioned? Are they, are they usually governed by WA law? Yeah, in my experience, they, they usually are often are covered by WA law, provided there's some sort of a nexus with WA. So, so Christian, if our contract's governed by WA law, that the next question that we come to is whether the project is, quotes, within, sorry, is water adjacent to Western Australia. What does that phrase actually mean, water adjacent to Western Australia? Right, that is an excellent question and one that's surprisingly unclear. Um, 
it's not entirely clear what water is adjacent to Western Australia under the Act because that term isn't defined in the Act and it doesn't spell out what it means. With a term like that, you'd normally expect to find a definition within the Act itself. Yep. And as you've said, Christian, there, there's no definition of water adjacent to Western Australia in the security of payments legislation, but there's very similar term that's used in other legislation um, throughout Australia, and that's the adjacent area of a state. Now, that phrase usually means waters offshore from the state out to the edge of the exclusive economic zone and continuing to the edge of the continental shelf. So, for example, there's an important set of Australian laws here that, that may be of relevance called the Coastal Waters Act. And in simple terms, those laws allow Western Australia and the Australian states to make laws for their, quotes, adjacent areas, close quotes. So that's within the exclusive economic zone in the continental shelf. And that's that's quite a long way out from the shoreline, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it is. Generally, it's between 200 and about 350 nautical miles, depending on where the continental shelf actually ends. So these limits come from the United Nations Convention on the Law of, sea, of the Sea or UNCLOS, which has a process for setting the precise boundaries of those areas. So things are more complicated along the maritime boundaries with Indonesia and, and Timor-Leste, but we'll leave that for a, a separate discussion. So for the offshore sector, um, what's most important is that Putting aside the maritime boundary per se, all resource activities off the West Australian coast in the foreseeable future are likely to come within the adjacent area. I suspect that's probably surprising to some of our listeners um, to hear that the Act, which is a state law, extends so far offshore. You often hear the waters within the three, three nautical miles called the state waters and everything else further out being referred to as Commonwealth waters. Yeah, that, 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 that's true, Christian. So within three nautical mile limit, technically called the state's coastal waters, the state laws apply just in the same fashion as they do on land, for example. But beyond that, the state's laws generally apply to all of the important categories of offshore economic activity. So, for example, offshore oil and gas, offshore mining, electricity, such as offshore wind farms and other sort of structures like that. So that's under a different Commonwealth laws that regulate each of these sectors. So there's a bit of a patchwork here. Yeah, and under this patchwork of laws, we have some uncertainty about that definition of adjacent area in the Security of Payment Act. Um, so the, the term we've been talking about, adjacent area, um, is the definition in the Coastal Waters Act, but there's a handful of other laws that use that term to mean very different things. One that comes to mind is the Sea Installations Act, which says the adjacent area starts from three nautical miles offshore and goes out from there. And then there's also the Petroleum Submerged, and La Submerged Lands Act in, in Western Australia, which has almost the opposite meaning yeah. from the coastline out to the three nautical miles limit and nothing past that. So you know, I, I think at this stage, we really can't be completely sure where the Security of, Act, of Payments Act applies to offshore construction. We're, we're in uh, uncharted borders, if you'll excuse the <laughs> We should have some clarity about this sooner or later when it comes before the courts to decide, or you know, my, my real hope is that the parliament might amend the act um, uh, relatively soon to give some clarity. But for now, I think um, if your project is off the coast of Western Australia and within these areas, the exclusive economic zone or, and the continental shelf, it's probably best to take a conservative approach 
and assume that your construction contract is subject to the Security of Payment Act. So that, that covers our second topic, Pat. Um, moving on to our third topic, and that's what should the offshore sector do in practical terms to take that conservative approach about the impact of the Security of Payment Act? Pat, you, you've been doing some work in this space recently, I think. Yeah, that's right. Thanks, Christian. And I think part of that requirement is to make sure that the, the contracts comply with the legislation. And we've been working with some clients recently updating their construction contracts and tender packages for various offshore projects to make sure they comply with the legislation. And a big, big part of the focus here has been on the payment terms and processes. So we also look at claim procedures as part of this overall process and especially for all claim notification requirements that might be seen to be unfair or unreasonably onerous, which obviously are not allowed under the legislation. But aside from getting the contracts right, I think it's just as important to make sure that the project and commercial teams understand the new Security Payment Act and importantly, what they need to do to comply with it. In the offshore sector, this will be a whole new world for many contract admins and commercial managers who may not have come across the old Construction Contracts Act at all, um, which was mainly relevant to on land construction because of, because of its narrower scope. Um, just on that, my colleagues and I um, at Clifford Chance uh, in the construction team, we, we quite often run uh, these training workshops on the new act for the projects and commercial teams on offshore projects. Um, we often have people walk out of these workshops quite shocked about how heavily the act impacts on their job. I really like seeing that, um, that sense of shock, <laughs> because um, they've clearly got a, lot of, of, got a lot of value from our workshop. It's definitely much better for a project team to have that shock um, with us sitting in a room <laughs> than down the track dealing with a disputed payment claim. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the low water line is an important boundary under the legislation as we've discussed. So construction work on the landward side is always covered by the legislation, obviously, but on the seaward side, it, it only applies if the contract is governed by Western Australian law. So what does this mean for construction that straddles the low water mark like a jetty or a wharf? Another very good question, Pat. Now, um, I suppose the first thing to mention is as you've said, it's it's common for these contracts to be governed by Western Australian law. So this might be a um, a problem that's rare in practice. But you know, it's possible that, for example, an international contractor might prefer to use the law of their own jurisdiction, or you know, a client or owner who's listened to this conversation perhaps might get a bit sneaky and try to add a New South Wales governing law clause to try and avoid the application of the Security of Payments Act over the water. So it's it's a it's a definitely a plausible scenario. Okay, so in that case, you'd have the Act only applying to part of the works, is that right? Yeah, so the Act says it will apply to the extent that the works are in Western Australia. So in this kind of scenario, um, you'll, you'll end up with the Act applying on one side of the low waterline, but not the other. In the, if, if the parties find themselves in this kind of scenario, it's, they really need to turn their minds to how much the Act is going to impact on project execution. So if it is going to impact, ideally at the outset of the project, um, they'll consider uh, does the contract payment claim procedure align with the Security of Payments Act because that will be less of an issue. Um, if, the, if the contract payments claim doesn't align with the Security of Payments Act, then you're going to have different timings for submitting claims or for payment um, on different sides of the low water line, which will make things complicated. Okay, and if this 
if this will have an impact, how, how does it actually affect the project execution? So in that case, the parties really have to be in a position to distinguish between work and costs performed on either side of the low water line. So that might involve, for example, um, tailoring some aspect of the project financial and management structure to distinguish between these categories. So um, for contractors, the internal cost accounting processes could reflect this distinction, for example, that they might have different cost codes for different work on land and over water. This will, of course, involve a level of additional administrative burden and that the parties will need to think at the outset about that trade off. Is there going to be benefited in administering the contract that warrants that extra cost? And that, that's really a case by case question. OK, thanks, Christian. OK, well, to recap on our session today, then it, it's not completely certain, but if you if your contract's governed by Western Australian law and your projects between the West Australian coast and the edge of the continental shelf, there's probably a good chance that the security of payments legislation will apply. Yeah, and if you are involved in a project in these areas, before the contract is signed, check whether it aligns with the Security of Payments Act, especially the payment mechanism and the claim procedures. Just as importantly, as I've said, make sure your project teams are equipped to comply with the Act uh, which can start with a, a training workshop like the one that we've now run for, for several contractors and, and owners that we work with. Okay, Christian, so, so we've discussed these issues in relatively simple terms um, this morning without going into too much detail on the legal issues because they're fairly complex. But if our listeners are interested in the legal complexities of the legislation, where can they find out more about it? Um, I'm very glad you asked, Pat. Um, <laughs> my article on the, the application of the Security of Payments Act to offshore projects will be published in the next issue of the Construction Law Journal. That's volume eight of 2022. Otherwise, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, as you can tell, I love talking about security of payments and it'd be great to hear from you. You've been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast by visiting cliffordchance.com and follow us on LinkedIn.